not every woman acts like that. I know. I'm just thinking of what, what you would do if I were if someone read my poem out loud, even if it was in our own podcast. You're doing it already. You're just thinking about it. Shut up. <laughs> In the 1850s, the Mormon faith was on the move. Since the murder of their leader, Joseph Smith, and their expulsion from the Midwestern states in the 1840s, Mormon settlers had been relocating over the Rocky Mountains by wagon and even handcart. Mormon villages and towns were popping across the Salt Lake Valley and the surrounding Great Basin region of the West. In 1854, church leader Brigham Young sent a band of 12 men to go south to establish a trading post along the Colorado River. Using the old Spanish trail, the group encountered one of the few natural crossings of the powerful Colorado in the area, or the Grand River as it was known then. After a slog through thick mud and sand, they set up a camp on the far side of the bank. A year later, 44 members of the church returned, built a small stone fort, and established the Elk Mountain Mission. This ill-fated mission was the beginning of what is now known as the City of Moab. I am Henry Miller, and I'm joined, as almost always, with uh, my lovely girlfriend, Hannah Gaziah Mills. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, and today, we are interviewing the mayor of the city of Moab, Emily Niehaus. Hi, this is Emily. Hi, Emily. It's Henry again. Hello, Henry. Uh, hi, how's it going? <laughs> It's going well. Awesome. Uh, can you hear Happy me Thursday. okay? Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. You... <laughs> I can hear you great. Okay, cool. Sorry, we're uh, we're working with a new soundboard, and we're just uh, it's it, there's a lot of buttons. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, life. Yeah, full of seriously. Um, so I'm here with my co-host Hannah Mills. Hi there, Emily. Hi, Hannah. And uh, we have a lot of questions to ask you about Moab today. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, I'm going to hand you off to Hannah. Oh. <laughs> So you are very recent, just less than a month that you've been in office? Yes, I was sworn in January 2nd. So how's it going? <laughs> it's going It's going great. <laughs> Quite the honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've been to Moab very briefly. I was at Canyonlands and just stopped over at a brewery there for a second and a rock store. So I've, I've only spent a small amount of time in the town, but it's beautiful. Uh, I did a bit of reading on you and it said that you moved there in 2002. I did. Was it because of moving with your husband or why'd you fall in love with Moab? Well, um, he wasn't my husband at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Chad and I were in graduate school together in South Carolina at Clemson University. We were both getting our master's degree he was in recreation and I was in sociology, but my master's thesis, which was environmental attitudes and behaviors among whitewater recreationists, oh. allowed me to dabble in the recreation department. And it also afforded me with a lot of time to go paddling and I would sit at the takeout and pass out a paper and pencil survey and drink PBR. <laughs> <laughs> It was a good time. It was a good graduate. Degree. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, while talking about environmental issues. So, yeah, I graduated and 
Chad actually was just my friend at the time. I got a job at Bryce Canyon here in Utah. He was coming to work in Moab for the BLM. When we landed here, we actually started dating. And so we had this, you know, a couple few months of like super romantic backpacking. You know, that's what we did for, for our dates. We would go backpacking and rafting and climbing. And I was not going to settle in Utah, but then he said, why don't you just marry me and move to Moab? (laughs) <laughs> and I said, sure. So I actually moved to Moab. The place was bonus, but, you know, I just, I didn't know. I honestly, I didn't know enough to say no. Right. I was just in love. And then landing in Moab with a master's degree in applied sociology, what are you going to do? I eventually figured it out. So you you were the direct, you're, you are the director of Community Rebuilds, which is an amazing foundation or organization. I was doing a little bit of research. I, I don't know a ton about the, it's uh, the straw bale or, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so yes, we build straw bale homes with low income families through student education programs. So we're building uh, energy efficient, non-toxic, affordable homes with the workforce of Moab, Utah. But we're not just building homes, we're also building uh, young emerging professionals in the construction industry. Yeah, I was. That was one of the things I I've been a huge advocate of affordable housing in my own city, and so that's always you know going to be the forefront of something that I'm interested in. But I was very interested in the idea that there were these people that just came in and were learning from the professionals in that area, and also volunteering. You know, doing something good for the community and getting to see the profit uh, from that. So uh, I thought that was very, very cool. I'm really lucky because I don't know that many people can say I have an idea and have, you know, the support, um, whether it's family or community or financial, you know, to be able to put together, you know, to be the founder of a company, let alone a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. And my husband said to me back when I had this great idea, he said, just don't spend any of our money. So Mm -hmm. I have literally grown community rebuilds through the support of people that I've been, you know, that have reached out to support support the idea. So really, I've just been so tenacious, but also lucky to have gotten, you know, the program where it is today. But, you know, it's not about the money. Yeah. It's about the human capital. And it's about the people coming together and having a shared vision of what, you know, affordable housing looks looks like and and who it's going who you're going to do it with if you're going to do it for or with. So really, again, I had this like idea, but it's been the team that has come together to, you know, produce this amazing program. I'm lucky because my work was easy having the idea. Getting it off the ground was a lot of sweat. Mm. But then once we built our first home, really it's been the efforts of the team, of the staff, of the donors, of the board that have built the homes. I mean, I was looking at it and I was like, I want to be like do an internship. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, so you, <laughs> me <you're>, too, <laughs> yeah. me too. <laughs> um, it, and that's and that's a great thing. It's not just you know there there are always these organizations. I'm not giving them 
any sort of criticism, but these organizations that are really just reaching into the immediate surroundings and who they can gather for help there. And it seems like you are really creating this learning environment for people as well as building something within your community. And that learning environment is for people from anywhere, which is, that's... Heck yeah, and guess what, girls? (laughs) Yeah, I know it is. Well, and I have to say, too, that, you know, we are moving into a new realm of possibility that we don't live in such a binary world. And the other thing that we try to foster at our job site, um, you know, is, is true accessibility for anybody interested in learning, no matter your um, socioeconomic background, your gender, gender identification. So you can come to Moab broke, uh, gender neutral, and be accepted, you know, on our job site and honored for your willingness to, to build a home and exchange labor for education. That is really awesome. So I, uh, on the sort of vein of uh, affordable housing that's been at the forefront of what I can tell what what your platform is going into being mayor is there anything that as you've gone into office that you've noticed that you can really impact or influence in in the way of affordable housing well um it's only been a month (laughs) (laughs) but I have had the opportunity to sit with our governor of the state of Utah and sit on the Governor's Office of Economic Development Rural Housing Roundtable and speak to the need for builders and say, well, let's unlock 50% of the population and give women the opportunity to, to build as well. For me, I definitely have priorities. That's what I ran on. That's what I'm going to focus on. The affordable housing piece is just a critical piece in our community because if we plant people in homes then we will really be able to actualize economic development businesses will expand and new businesses will come in because there will be an available workforce yeah but i want to see more economic diversity because we've got an it's an incredibly beautiful place to live and a lot of recreational opportunities, but not everybody fits into, you know, the tourism employment field, you know, and those jobs are seasonal and some are temporary. And while being a server is a great job, if somebody wants diversity, if somebody wants an alternative job, then let's make sure that we have that here in Moab so that we're not so dependent on our tourism-based economy. I want to see, you know, what it means to expand existing businesses and maybe bring in new entrepreneurs that are going to hire locally. So that's a priority for me. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I mean, when you're like <laughs> representing the people and doing the business that the city government should be doing, you got to make sure the roads are kept and the sewer lines are cleaned. <laughs> you know? right. Well, not cleaned, but clear. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, not clear, but open. <laughs> Working, um, <laughs> not flooding people's businesses. <laughs> yes. And water, you know, that water, both quantity and quality, and that we're, you know, we're in the desert. So we need to fiercely protect that resource. Right. So infrastructure development in general is another priority. 
Yeah, I, I read about the the gray and green infrastructure that you kind of talked about when you were running. And we're here in Portland, so green infrastructure is a huge thing. The bioswales and different ways of bioremediation for uh, cycling of water. You guys get nine inches of rain a year. Is that correct? Yeah. That is insane. So what is green infrastructure there? Well, the first, does it make you thirsty? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, I was I was in Canyonlands and, and I was like, I need like water and trees and shade and like some and more chapstick. shade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lotion. Exactly. You know, it's all about, you know, what would it be to live in a regenerative community? Mm-hmm. What would it look like instead of feeling like that we're just taking resource and then throwing away waste? Right. That, you know, that our waste is part of our resource. I want to talk about like water cycles and I want to talk about energy cycles and I want to talk about economic cycles within a community. Like if you're spending a dollar in the community and you're making it in the community and the products are manufactured in the community, um, you have this incredible exponential wealth. Whereas if you're buying manufactured products outside of your community or you're spending your dollars outside of your community, you're flashing your system economically just like water, if you just divert and throw water, you know, you're just flashing your system. So we get heavy rains and we get flash floods. And so, you know, the rate at which the water leaves the system is important, but how it leaves the system is important. I mean, we're, we're charging the Colorado River from our runoff. Mm-hmm. But if we can get a little seeping, if we can slow that down, if we can, you know, do it not only with um, rainwater, but also gray water, then we're going to be able to not, you know, have to use groundwater to be able to water our lawn. So just these cycles, this this way of thinking about um, what would it be to live in a regenerative community? Right. Um, so I'm really excited about, you know, my new position. Who knows what I'll be able to do? Maybe I'll fail, but at least I can, you know, create fertile soil. So when ideas like that fall, they'll they'll have a safe place to land and grow. I think that's kind of the mindset of not just small communities across the nation, just sort of realizing that, you know, there is a limit to what is there and how much better it is for your community and for the environment to use what you have in your immediate area. Um, So that's, yeah, I think that's really good. I think we're getting close to having to wrap up. Uh, okay, but I have I have a sort of fun question for you. It says that you <laughs> did theater uh, as a producer, director, and an actress. My mother was in theater for a very long time, and so I've always been introduced to that. What was your favorite? What was your favorite play that maybe you directed or produced, or what role was your favorite? I played the role of Claire in David Lindsay Bear's play, Fuddy Mirrors, and it was awesome. Nice. Yeah. In, in case people haven't seen that, can you sum up the plot really fast or, or just tell us about yes, it? Yes. I had a traumatic event that left me with amnesia, and my mother had a stroke, so she couldn't talk very well, so I couldn't understand. She tried to tell me things, but I couldn't understand. I had a a husband, a new husband, that was just reminded me every day who I was and told me the story. It was a happy story. And a son who was troubled 
Um, and then I was um, abducted from my ex ex husband who had a limp and his face was is distorted and well the story I won't give it away but um <laughs> I remember what happened and it was not funny but it's like a dark comedy. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. I liked that. That was really fun. But those days might be on hold for a while because I got to focus on this mayor business and this keep working on this affordable housing business. I will say one more thing. Yeah. Um, that no matter what we do, the greatest resource in our country is not oil or gas or minerals. Our greatest resource are each other. And specifically, the resource that we need to mine and cultivate more than any other is our young emerging professionals. There's a stereotype that millennials are lazy. And I call bullshit. Oh, oh, I don't know if I can on the... No, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> Am I okay to say that? Oh, yeah, yeah. we're a podcast. You're also, you're also talking to two millennials, so we call bullshit too. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, this is our time to get creative and build really cool stuff. Community Rebuilds was the idea that I had um, because as a woman and a 20-year-old, I was 27 when I came up with the idea, I didn't have the opportunity to learn natural building. So... I created something for myself that I, you know, never get to participate in, but I get to pass it on to others. So that is, I, that's very awesome. I, I am imp very impressed. I don't know how else to say that. So. <laughs> Come to Moab, build, build some straw bale homes. I, I, super down. It's very, very tempting. <laughs> um, I did love Moab, and I think what you're doing is very awesome. So, we will wrap up and thank you so much for coming on. And when we're in town, we'll come and say hi. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you thank so you. much, Mary House. See ya. Uh huh. Bye. Hey. Trying to trying to hang it. There we go. <laughs> I could not hang that up. Yeah, she she was really nice in that. She's also been incredibly nice every time I've called her. Uh, aside from that, so. I just, she's a very cool person. Yeah, I really like her. I um, was doing so much research on her, I was getting like a lady crush. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, I feel like it's fairly justifiable. I thought it was interesting that in her conclusion statement that she said like our most valuable resources are, you know, the, the minds of you know, of people in the community yeah. uh, and not the oil and, and mineral. And millennials, young professionals. <laughs> yeah, and young professionals. Uh, <laughs> but not the mineral and oil wealth considering that like Moab was like but built that's by that. What was? I know. Well, that, well, that's yeah. So that, I, it, like that, you can't you can't expect somebody who is a part of a town that watched that recede so much that it's gone. Yeah. Say like, I think we should really try and advocate to get that weird thing yeah. up again. But uh, at the same time, I I think that's a really beautiful statement. I mean, she said some really cool things in yeah. her I, I was when uh, when we decided to do Moab when I was doing like some vague research based off of that list that you sent me of towns after uh, Telluride I was kind of expecting to get a different story about Moab like um, I think it's because Telluride's big big mining days were like 1890s to 1910s yeah. and Moab didn't really start hitting a mining boom until the 1950s and yeah. I, I was just kind of expecting a different community, I guess, because a lot of the people who left Telluride 
when the mining industry was replaced by recreation, they moved to Moab. And I, I, I don't know, I, I was expecting maybe like a different community perspective, but it seems like Moab, just like Telluride and Butte yeah, and, and Jackson. And Butte and Jackson. I think it's, it's, it's a lot of the old mining towns mm. Uh, they they were the initial unionizers. They like yeah. they were looking for you know community support. They were looking for their yeah. citizens to have a say in their government and how they were treated. And so I'm totally theorizing right now, but I think that has a lot to do with how those communities have developed. Yeah, I mean it, that definitely seems to be the case. I and maybe this has something to do with um sort of the evolution or maybe like the the generation of how communities work. Like w- when you start off as a mining community, you're inherently working with a limited and finite resource that in uh, in Butte's case and in other places as soon as cheaper labor and uh, mines were discovered in in Chile or elsewhere, um, they just kind of got the rug pulled out from under them, and it went from being like a huge working class town to almost a, a ghost town. Right. And I, I think that you know people kind of get sick of being taken advantage of by extremely wealthy individuals who live in not mining towns. In in Butte's case, it was New York, and they see they see it like very you know it's firsthand knowledge of that yeah it's it's different than i think now so so often those towns that do suffer from the same blights of yeah. of a uh, sort that those mining towns suffered back then there was a v- very direct who is who is at fault oh yeah and, yeah. and the copper kings right we should probably stop talking about Butte. i just i loved that episode so much uh, and moab a- kind of it's sort of like part of this. Right. It almost feels not like a mythology, but like a pantheon of mining towns that yeah. really have a a distinct identity. And you know, it's interesting. So I I wanted to talk to her about this, but I wasn't. I wanted to stick to the things that we could get to. Mm. Moab has a very interesting. Their economic and citizen data is weird. What? How so? So Utah has the lowest median age in the country. Oh, you, really? Yes. What's, what's the age? And it's what's the a, difference? It's 20, 29.2. The median age of USA, really? 37.2. What? And Moab is 37.4. Why is Utah so young? So a lot of different theories on this, but it's high fertility rate, mm. probably because of the Mormon influence. Yeah. Yeah. So just a high fertility. fertility rate. Is there anything? And then their household size. So the household size in Utah, average mm-hmm. household size is, is 3.13. In the USA, it's 2.5. <laughs> and in Moab, it's 2. I, 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 I'm I trying to make sense of these numbers that you're throwing at me and I can't. <laughs> it's I, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Yeah. Like I think I, I think a lot of it has to do with the tourism economy. Oh, for sure. Um, well, that would make sense because the area around Moab is just like it's Canyonlands. It's Arches. It's right. Uh, what's the other one? That's uh, Escalante. Yeah. And uh, Dead Horse Point or mm. Park or whatever. Anyway. It's like the doorway to the, some of the most famous 
well, I would say like two out of the five most famous national parks and monuments in the country. They're beautiful. And they are beautiful. Go. I would recommend, I know everybody goes to Arches, go to Canyonlands. Yeah. It seems like Arches maybe gets more people. Definitely it, yeah. gets more people. And we the... we were planning on going to Arches and then we went to Canyonlands and it was so beautiful. Mm. You still get arches if you go to the right places. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but there's uh, also like other things. Like uh, looking at the pictures, arches has stuff like one of them uh, is called the Elephant Parade, I believe, which is pretty cool. It, it looks like a parade of elephants in the stone faces. Um, yes. uh, but Canyonlands is more of like its own kind of um, Grand Canyon esque. Uh, looking landscape, and, and actually, they're they use it in Thelma and Louise for when they, you know, launch yeah, yeah. into the Grand Canyon. It's actually uh, Canyonlands, right? <laughs> that's that's funny. Okay, should we should we go to some like history? Should I yeah, should I bring that please. up? Okay, Moab, where it is. So it's a very important particular crossroads uh, in terms of uh, geography and, and geology. It was one of the few natural crossings that went over the Grand, now the Colorado River. It For thousands of years, I, I couldn't find it, you know, exact numbers because this is this is a lot of history. Um, but <laughs> so it, the area of Moab has been used by Ute and Navajo Indians for trading, po- for like trading spots and what? I just realized Paiute. Yes. Ute. Okay. Paiute. There we go. Okay. So Ute. Uh, wow, we should have done that sooner. So the area around Moab has been you know, used by human beings for around 10,000 years. Up to 30,000. Up to 30,000, but at least 10,000. Yes. And it was used as a crossing point for the river. The first peoples were probably ancestral Puebloans, which you can learn more about if you listen to our Taos episode, which was really interesting. I did love that episode. Yeah. The ancestral Puebloans are like the coolest, uh, well, I'm I'm making a judgment call here, but I I think that's one of the most fascinating ancient civilizations. They are very cool. Yeah. So anyway, so they were the first ones to arrive in the area. Then the Ute and the Navajo Indians uh, used the area as a trading spot, as a meeting place, um, gathering place and the first Europeans uh, the first European known to have crossed the Grand uh, now the Colorado River was Juan Maria Antonio de Rivera in 1765 I didn't do that with a Spanish accent at all it doesn't matter Okay, Uh, (laughs) so he was the first recorded European to use it he mapped out the the area he brought back some of the first gold ores or the like first evidence that there was gold in Colorado and it just went completely overlooked. Like no one, it didn't, it wasn't followed by a gold rush. And I think it was because the Spanish Empire was mainly just trying to keep like other European powers in check from, from moving into the region. Anyway, this was uh, one of the beginnings of the old Spanish trail. And uh, the Spanish trail is kind of, it's kind of like the Silk Road where it's really a network of trails that connected Santa Fe, New Mexico to Los Angeles. And as people probably know, the Colorado River kind of goes right between those two places. And it's a huge obstacle to get around and get over uh, until they started building bridges across it. And Moab was one of the first places where they built a bridge across it in 1911 or 12. And I think it was the second bridge over the Colorado River. 
And and I think the Colorado River wasn't named that until 1920-something, 1921 or something. So it was still called the Grand River, which is why there's like Grand County and, and other stuff. But anyway, so this place was especially significant for a lot of different people who were moving in and out of the area and into the area. So one of the uh, primary groups to move in, in and actually try to live permanently in what is now Moab uh, were the Mormons. Yeah. So the, the Mormons were all moving over the Rockies in the 1840s, 1850s, after Joseph Smith was murdered. Some of them were going by handcarts, which is wild to me. So people used wagons to get over the Rockies, but other people just pulled handcarts. And they moved into Utah and they started filling up um, the valley and, and sort of like the, the Great Basin region. Settlements were going up. It's really interesting. I mean, we haven't talked a lot about Mormon history because we haven't done a Utah town yet. It has a very civilizational, like they're, they're trying to build a network of, of cities. It has a different story to it than anything on the other side of the Rockies and anything that I know of on the west side. Anyway, did so, you did you read about uh, Cassidy? Butch Cassidy? Yes. He, in, who was a Mormon who um, whose parents are you give me that look because it's not true. I didn't know he was a Mormon. He, he wasn't. His parents were. Okay. Um, ooh, we should double check this, but I'm pretty sure he his parents moved from the UK because uh, a lot of Mormons were actually from Europe and immigrated to be in Salt Lake City. At least his, like one of his drivers was definitely Mormon. Yeah. I need to get back on track. So the Mormons were the first to try to establish a permanent settlement on the site of present-day Moab. They were expelled by Ute Indians after they, they tried to convert a few people. Things seemed to be going well. And in a matter of three months in 1855, from, from July to September... Fighting broke out. The the remnants of the fort that they built, it sounds like they're gone, but it was a stone fort. And everywhere that I uh, looked up about it, people kept saying that it's near the parking lot of the Motel 6. <laughs> <laughs> it was really weird. <laughs> you're like, yeah, it's off the corner of the parking lot of Motel 6. So if you're trying to find, if you're trying to do some archaeology, I would like to get more detailed information about the existence of that fort. They did find the oldest dinosaur bone. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You want to say that? Oh, I... You, can, I can you say that again? So we go. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead. Um, <laughs> the name is very interesting. Yes. Moab, the name. Where does it come from, Hannah? So there are multiple theories. There are. There is a biblical Moab. Yes. And there... Uh, are people who believe, are historians who believe that they use the name Moab because the first postmaster, who was named William Pierce, mm-hmm. believed that the biblical Moab and Moab in Utah were both, in quotations, the far country. So then the other side of it is that it, it could be referring to the word Moapa, yeah. which is a Paiute word for mosquito. Yeah. But they tried to change the name because in the Bible, the Moabites Moabites, Mm -hmm. uh, were... They were incestuous and idolatrous. Yes. I'm going to do this over again. 
So in the Bible, no, I keep it. The Moabites were not kosher. <laughs> I can't do this. That is the lamest joke. Keep the keep the other no, one. No, no, no. In in the Bible, the Moabites were you know they had sex with their family members and <laughs> why are you overcomplicating this because it's fun <laughs> <laughs> so yeah anyway um and and they had a petition in 1890 to change the name to vena and it failed yeah and then they tried again to change the name to uva dahlia and that also good job yeah Uvidalia. yeah both of those names are terrible moab is a great name yeah um okay but before we leave the 19th century i just want to say a couple things the postmaster general um that was the establishment of the first post office in the 1880s i think 1880 maybe 81 um and that was an important connection again between like uh las vegas and i think denver and people didn't actually start moving there and, and settling there because the Mormons were kicked out. People didn't really try to move there until 1878 when two people, a prospector, William Grandstaff, and trapper, a trapper named Frenchie, moved into the ruin of the old fort. And there's kind of a sad history to this, or I, I don't really know. So Bill was forced to leave the town in 1881. Oh, he got there in in 77, not 78. My bad. And he was accused of selling bootleg liquor to uh, Native Americans uh, in the area. And it's possible that it was a race thing because he was a mixed race cowboy. He uh, had to leave behind all of his belongings and one of his, uh, you know, where he was living, I believe, was uh, renamed uh, Bill Canyon or actually negro bill canyon and there is a <laughs> I'm, wow there's a debate around this so it's called negro bill canyon it used to be a more pejorative term expression for the canyon but the there's a debate um at least on one website about whether they should keep the name because it represents a diversity uh and a history that shouldn't be forgotten um and, uh, yeah, it's kind of skipping ahead. People started moving there in the 80s. The town of Moab was platted in 1890. They had their first bridge built in 1911. Oh, and the town was incorporated in 1902, possibly 01. I get different dates for that. Their main industry was fruit, actually. Mm. Did you know that? Did you? No. Okay. So it's a really great place for growing different fruits for some reason. And they grew peaches and melons and grapes so, and apples. And it became one of the most important fruit production regions in Utah. This is as early as the 1890s. Uh, someone tried to build uh, uh, the first oil well in the early, t- the beginning of the 20th century, the same decade when they found. Um, was it not uranium? Is uh, no, it's uranium. Yeah, you know, uranium. Uh, the Dewey Suspension Bridge was built upriver in 1916, which connected Moab to the northern parts of uh, Utah a little bit better. That recently burned down, by the way. And the town became a city in 1936. And what else should I say? Uh, big its big break was in the 1950s when uranium got a huge. Uh, new um, like value because of the Cold War, um, so it 
the population quadrupled within a decade, which is pretty crazy, um, to about 4,600 people. Um, and it was replaced by Podash in the 1960s. We but, should say that their population now is 5,235. Yeah. And there's, I think there was a decline in the 90s, if I'm rem- remembering that correctly. But the tourism industry uh, and the recreation industry started filling the gaps of mining. 1964 was when Canyonlands was established. 1929 was when the Arches National Monument was uh, designated. And yeah, that's okay. So that's the that's the history of the town. I got that all out. Yes. Let's talk about things. So there are a couple of things just to talk about the geology of the area. Oh yeah. It's it's very interesting. So is it as unusual as it seemed to me? No, there. When I was it, reading about it, it is absolutely unusual. So my father owns a a company which does uh, geotechnical engineering, and. I actually talked to him about this, and he was kind of blown away by what this was. Okay. So in Moab, and specifically in the Arches, there's a biological soil crust uh, that is alive, and it's called- What do you uh, mean alive? So- Like, soil crust sounds not alive to me. That sounds- I mean, is it dirt? it's, It's composed of algae- Lichen and bacteria. Mm-hmm. So it's called cyanobacteria, and it was previously called blue-green algae, and they are the oldest known life forms. Really? Yes. It's thought that these organisms were among the first uh, land colonizers of the Earth's early land masses. When wet, the cyanobacteria move through the soil and bind rock together, as well as soil, and form intricate webs of fibers And they were able to join loose soil particles together in an otherwise unstable surface. And that's why there are these formations. So the the soil in the area is alive and joining it together. Wait, 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 wait. So, like, the big arches were created by... Algae. Well, okay, so that's another thing. Okay, because that looks like erosion to me. Well, no, no, no. It is. I could be wrong. I, oh, yeah, okay. Okay, let me let me explain this to you. Okay. Yeah, why the hell are there incredible arches there? The arches lie below an underground evaporate layer of salt. Okay. And that's the main cause of the formations. Okay. The silt bed is thousands of feet thick in places and was deposited in the Paradox Basin of the Colorado Plateau some 300 million years ago. Right. And actually, you can't fly planes above the arches because the vibrations of the planes might break the arches. What? Yeah. Yeah. But there have been some really cool movies that have been made there. Oh, yeah. Okay, again, movie town. Wait, what was I going to say? Huge movie. Oh, wait, before we get to movies. Okay. So Edward Paul Abbey, Mm -hmm. he was an American author who was huge on environmental rights. I had to read him in my environmental ethics class. Mm -hmm. He kind of promoted the environmental, I I don't want to say terrorism, but kind of terrorism, like the veil shit that happened, you know, when they like set veil on fire. What? Anyway, he didn't. I don't know what you mean. He didn't promote it, but it's kind of that movement. Where where they would like eco terrorism? 
where where they would do it to hurt the environment or do it to no to be like you're ruining up. the okay. environment and therefore I'm going to ruin you and therefore the environment more. Mm. I have opinions. Yeah, but he wrote two very very good books. Okay, uh, one of them is Monkey Wrench, Wrench King. Uh, which is actually the only fiction he wrote. And it's about an eco-terrorism group. So he also wrote the book Desert Solitaire. Okay. And that is based on his experiences in Moab. He was a ranger at the Arches Mm. for a long time. And so much of his work on Desert Solitaire was about his time at the Arches. And... He it was based on these like this large volume of notes and sketches that he took while he was a ranger there. But cool movies that were that were filmed there. Yes, John Ford. Say, I'm saying that loudly. Yes. <laughs> also, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Whoa. What? The opening scene when River Phoenix, a young Indiana uh, yeah. Jones. Uh, makes a daring attempt to recover a valuable archaeological artifact. Ooh, another opening scene when Tom Cruise climbs a rock face. To, that is the other one. To get shot at with a rocket filled with cool 90s glasses. Also, Mission that Impossible 2 later. ruined my life. Because it's it, about a virus killing everybody. I became a hypochondriac because of that movie. Yeah. City Slickers 2. Yes. Oh, le- less awesome. But yeah, uh. Austin Powers three, which I love because it's <laughs> it's again Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise <laughs> <laughs> pretending to be Austin Powers in a movie about Austin Powers here's, in a movie called Austin Powers. <laughs> here's where it gets so 127 hours is actually about the the some Blue John Canyon, and that is actually right there. What? You know 127 hours, right? Yeah. So that's in Moab or mm. near Moab. Where they filmed Blue it. Blue John Canyon. Okay. Is where he actually lost his arm. Okay. Or actually, he waited for his arm to decompose and then he cut it off. What? I didn't know that part. Mm-hmm. His arm started decomposing? Yeah, because of the blood loss. Ugh. I'm so grossed out right now. If he my arms had... started dying in front of me, I would I I would give I don't know what I would do. He carved into the wall, this is where I died, and then he like recorded a video for his family of like I'm dying. Mm-hmm. And then he went to sleep and he woke up in the morning and realized his arm was decomposing and he was like, "Oh, I can do this now." And then he cut off his arm. And then he climbed out of a canyon, and then he had an eight-mile walk, and then he walked part of it and then ran to a family with a child, with a child who had to see this hobbling man with no arm. I I love how you're painting the child as a victim as opposed to the... Well, the, well, you know what? It I, No, it's not his fault. I don't know what the story it's is. It's nobody's fault. It's nobody's fault. I'm just saying. It's his fault for living an active lifestyle. Well, he didn't tell anyone where he was. Oh, well, that's, well, then that's the problem. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out where my, my rage can go because of the social media area. I need, era. I need to get upset about something. 
And I, uh, this is just a crazy story. Westworld. Oh, yeah. Also, wait, this one got me so excited. Larger than life. What's larger than life? It's a it's a Bill Murray. Uh, oh, when we he's friends with an elephant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, uh, "There's the, the one of the last lines is uh, Bill Murray is like, you know, they they say elephants never forget, but they should say that you never forget an elephant or something." Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> what a heartfelt movie. Ma- <laughs> Matthew McConaughey plays a tweaked out truck driver. Who attacks Bill Murray with the Wait, crowbar? Really? I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Oh man, I want to watch it again. Yeah, which I I don't know if Matthew McConaughey is playing a character. Maybe Matthew McConaughey was like, "I'm going to do truck driving for a month and see see where I end up." And he, and he ended up in a movie with Bill Murray. I yeah, don't I don't believe is, in the stars aligning that much. He is tweaking out in that movie. Oh, that was a good pun. What the stars aligning that much? I what I don't get the pun. It's an idiom. Their stars. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ! Yeah, you never forget an elephant, Hannah. Uh, yeah. So there's that. Oh yeah. Oh, they also filmed uh, stagecoach. John. Okay, we should say this before we uh, close out. John Ford was the first director to use the area f- as a film shoot. And Stagecoach was is probably the first famous film to come out of there. And that was one of the, it was the big introduction of John Wayne. Yeah. That, uh, and it's a really interesting scene. It's one of the few scenes of John, any John Wayne movie where he enters the movie and he's this like stunning macho figure. He's very young. He's got to be in his early 20s. And he's carrying a gun and the camera like pans in on him. And it's supposed to kind of establish this, like, daring Western cowboy type kid. And I think because the camera was panning in on him so quickly, like, they literally moved it up to his face. He kind of flinches when it does it. And it's I, the, I swear to God, it's the only time where I've ever seen John Wayne afraid in his movies, which is also kind of why I don't like John Wayne movies that much. They're, they're, they're interesting from a historical standpoint, but it's, it's hard to identify with a character who's just the same Constantly, we didn't, we didn't mention that Butch Cassidy supposedly held out in the area around Moab. Yeah, and his secret hideouts. But I honestly had a, I had a difficult time backing that up. That, yeah, that is all hearsay. There, there was a lot of stuff. Yeah, it just didn't. It didn't seem to pull together very well. Like all of the history that I found. But yeah, do what have we not covered? I was just gonna close out with a. The poem by by the mayor's husband, Chad Niehaus. Fine. Fine. <laughs> and to close us out is a poem by the mayor's husband, Chad Niehaus. To love a place and live it fully is to feel the thorns of it and appreciate their purpose, to feel the dry throat and want to drink every drop of a dry sand place and wipe your mouth and sigh. Lovely. All right. See you later, hand dog. <laughs> Bye, hen dog. Oh, my goodness. Thanks, Moab, for letting us do you. <laughs> One more time. Okay. Bye, Hannah. Bye, Henry. Oh, my God. That's the worst sign out of all time. 